This is the 542 in the Blue podcast, discussions of law enforcement, history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. Scott, your mic is on. Thanks again, Alice. I appreciate it. For those of you that have been inquiring, Victoria will be back with us hopefully soon in the next week or so. She has some personal business at home to take care of, and I believe everything is working out with that. So we hope to hear from her or have you guys hear from her about before too long. Thank you for uh, everybody who's asked and inquired. Today's Shade of Blue story for 542 and the Blue is a story about law enforcement, the court system, witchcraft, and ghostly testimony in the courts. It's the year 1835 in Fentress County, Tennessee. A gentleman by the name of Joseph Stout was arrested and brought before Justice of the Peace Joshua Owens. Mr. Stout was an elderly man and he was taken before the Justice of the Peace and charged with felony witchcraft, more precisely cursing or bewitching a young girl by the name of Taylor in the community that he lived in. Apparently Taylor had developed an alleged mystery illness of some sort. The local doctor was unable to explain her illness and or cure her. Family and parts of the community decided that she must have been bewitched or hexed. After that logical conclusion, Taylor's father filed a complaint with Joshua Owens, the Justice of the Peace. It appears that the Justice of the Peace, Mr. Owens, found probable cause for bonding over Mr. Stout to district court. Warrants were secured to take Mr. Stout into custody and hold him for court and trial. Stout was generally believed to be the guilty party. He had lived alone in the neighborhood and it was said sat up late at night reading strange books. He did not attend the local church, but when he did go out when individuals gathered up for events and he did show up, he would go in and out quietly, usually had very little to say. Joseph Stout was a curious odd mystery character in the neighborhood. Evidence and testimony that had been presented to Justice of the Peace Owens was that Stout could come and go in and out of houses through the keyhole of the door. Apparently this was a common witch practice and is documented in other witchcraft references of the day in other Appalachian witchcraft stories. Stout, according to testimony, had been known to throw people and animals into strange spells when he was miles away. My question is, if Mr. Stout was miles away when these strange spells were thrown on people and animals, how did they know it was him? Hearing the sworn statements, the Justice of the Peace apparently found the probable cause to have a warrant issued for his arrest. Apparently arresting a witch, even with a quote legal warrant unquote 
is a dangerous and difficult endeavor. In making the arrest, according to the newspaper accounts of the story, local law enforcement and a posse went after him armed with a gun that was loaded with silver bullets. Now, I'm not an expert in the arrest of witches. Got some good friends that are witches, as a matter of fact. But I was under the impression that the silver bullet thing was a werewolf issue, not a witch issue. Anyway, back to our story. Locating and taking Mr. Stout into custody and brought before him over to the circuit court, a Judge Abraham Carruthers presided over this court and a Mr. John McCormick was the attorney for the estate. Now, Judge Robert Looney Carruthers, and yes, that is his actual middle name, which I think is a very good middle name for a member of the bar, was an American judge, politician, and professor. He helped establish the Cumberland University and was co-founder of the Cumberland School of Law, one of the oldest law schools in the South. He served as a Tennessee State Attorney General, a Justice on the Tennessee Supreme Court, and served one time in the United States House of Representatives. He had actually been elected Governor of Tennessee by the state's Confederate Congress, but he never took office, which is kind of interesting in the fact as he was a very strong Unionist and not in favor of secession at the time of the beginning of the Civil War. Yet he was so respected that even though he was a strong Unionist, the Confederate Congress in Tennessee elected him governor. But it, like I said, he never took office. When the witchcraft matter was brought before the judge, he actually refused to hear the case, as did the prosecution for the state. The prosecution refused to even put it before the judge, but the judge was aware of it and basically said, if it's brought before me, he would not hear it. When the indictment was tossed out by the court, that would have ended the case, or did it. Mr. Stout, instead of taking some sort of magic retaliation, as anyone who has watched any 1970 movies would expect, he sought redress for the assault, the arrest, and the indignations through the Tennessee court system, a most civil application of revenge or justice. Law enforcement and members of the posse that brought Mr. Stout roughly before the Justice of the Peace earlier and held him in custody until Judge Carruthers' court convened were criminally charged with assault, holding somebody against their will illegally, and other charges. Now these charges were held up and they were brought before Judge Carruthers this time when Judge Carruthers again convened his court. Now the defense of the law enforcement officers and the members of the posse that were also indicted was that they were following the rules of law as set by Henry VIII and James I where that declared the practice of witchcraft to be a felony and the argument of their attorney was this had never been repealed. Judge Carruthers pointed out that the referendum of 1778 would have canceled any common law points on the topic of witchcraft. The practice of such being a felony in Tennessee had never been the law. 
Not only were the officers and members of the posse found guilty of assault and illegal restraint of another, but Mr. Stout also filed a libel suit in civil court that he also won. Like I said in a previous podcast, never underestimate the lady at the back of the room. Lady Justice did prevail in this case, but Miss Karma showed up after all. That brings us to another shade of blue story along these same lines, also from the state of Tennessee, and also involving alleged witchcraft in the court. The next story of charges of witchcraft and the court system was tried in the circuit court at Jamestown, Tennessee in 1843. The case heard before Judge Abraham Carruthers, actually a different person, no relation that I could find, A record of this case does appear on the minute book of the June term of this court, again in Jamestown, Tennessee in 1843. The case is listed as the state versus Bledsoe. The charge was liable based on the following handbill. Now, if you're not familiar with what is referred to in history as pamphleteers or handbillers, Uh, These were individuals that had access to printing presses and would produce a lot, basically their own newspaper or their own text of some sort, where they had control over it and they thought they could say whatever they wanted to, which is really not very practical and actually not very legal a lot of times. I guess you could compare this to the Facebook of the 1800s. The following handbill have been passed around in the community. Quote, To whom it may concern, a witch of most extraordinary power has made her appearance in Jamestown. She can, at a single touch, convert those who have lived without stain or blemish into the most consummate rogues and rascals. She can transform members of the church into liars, sorcerers, and robbers of hen roosts, a.k.a. chicken thieves. She can change her neighbor's geese into her own with a single touch of her all-powerful wand. She infests those who share her bed with an overstock of lonesome vermin. Think about that for a second. She fills those with whom she converses with false ideas of her neighbor's honesty. Unless she ceases the exercise of this diabolic art, she shall feel the force of public opinion turned against her. That was all published in a handbill and passed out in the community. Pretty strong words. Even if just half of those are true, I would leave the lady alone. The jury found Mr. Bledsoe guilty of thus libeling one Marsha Millsap and fixed his fine at $25. John Savage was the prosecuting attorney, and later Mrs. Millsap, the woman who brought the complaint, and later Mrs. Millsap, or Miss Millsap, the woman that filed the complaint, brought a suit for $10 thousand dollars worth of damage against Mr. Bledsoe and the jury gave her judgment for this amount. Now thinking back this is 1800s ten thousand 
dollars in 1800s money. That is a lot of money. So once more, the lady in the back of the room, I believe, working with Lady Justice, prevailed in this case. Now our final story of Shade of Blue comes from West Virginia. Our final Shade of Blue comes from West Virginia and involving the courts and law enforcement investigations and testimony in court. The state of West Virginia has erected a historical marker near a cemetery. The marker reads, quote, interned in nearby cemetery is Zona Hester Shue. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward was found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state's prison, and this is considered the only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. End of historical marker. Asking a lot of questions, or at least one or two. So we'll start at the beginning. On January 23, 1897, Miss Elva Zona Hester Shue of Lewisburg, West Virginia, who had been married only three months, was found dead at the bottom of the stairs leading to the second floor of the log house where she lived with her husband, Edward. Her husband was a blacksmith and that day had sent a local 11-year-old boy to the house to do chores for his wife, which apparently he did on a regular basis. Not getting a response at the door, our young man opened the unlocked front door and found Miss Elva's body at the foot of the stairs. The follow-up investigation and court case remains to this day a one-of-a-kind event in the American judicial system. The only case in which the words of a ghost are alleged to have helped solve a homicide and convict a murderer. And of course, this occurring in our Appalachian Mountains. Finding the body, our young man ran to tell his mother then ran to uh, Mr. Shue's blacksmith shop where he was working. Shue ran home and gathered his dead wife into his arms, cradling her there and called for other members of the community to locate the local doctor and coroner, Dr. Knapp, K-N-A-P-P. By the time the doctor arrived, which took over an hour, Shu had carried his wife's body upstairs to the bedroom and laid her out on the bed. He dressed the corpse himself, which is and was unusual, as traditionally the job of washing and preparing the body for burial would have been done by the women in the community or the women of the church. Nevertheless, Shu dressed her in a high neck dress with a stiff collar and placed a veil over her face. Our good husband, Mr. Shu, stayed by the corpse of his wife while Dr. Knapp examined it, cradling his wife's head and sobbing. The doctor seeing this emotional scene and this husband's grief did only a brief examination. Noting some bruising on the neck, he did attempt to look closer at same, 
But she reacted so violently to this that Dr. Knapp ended the examination and left the house, thinking that it was because of the grief of the husband. Dr. Knapp concluded that Zana had died of an everlasting faint, which is what would be referred to today as a heart attack. Later, he did change this finding on documentation. He changed the cause of death to childbirth. Apparently, Dr. Knapp had been treating her for female trouble for two weeks before her death, but whether she was actually pregnant or not is, is really not known. The body, of course, being made for burial with Mr. Shu never leaving his wife's side. Assisting the preparation of the body for burial and being in control of it, placing her in the casket himself, always handling her head, he placed a folded sheet beside her head and an article of clothing on the other side, explaining to the people that were in attendance that it would make her rest better. He also tied a large scarf around her neck and explained tearfully that it had been Zana's favorite. Zana was taken to her mother's home, the home of Miss Mary Jane Hester. Shu showed great devotion towards the body of his wife, keeping a vigil at the head of the open coffin the entire time the body was moved. When the body was laid out as was custom in the Hester house, his behavior began to cause some suspicion. During the visitation and viewing, his grief and demeanor would change from overwhelming sadness to incredible anger and or energy. She was buried the next day, and no one thought anything really unusual about the death other than that the young lady was quite young. Within a month of the burial, the dead girl's mother began relating to others in the community and other family members that Zana's spirit had appeared four nights in a row to her to accuse the blacksmith, her husband, of her violent death, to, quote, tell on him to set the record straight about her dying. The spirit had told the mother that she was a cruel man who had abused her and who had attacked her in a fit of rage when he believed that she had cooked no meat for dinner. There you go. He broke her neck. To prove this, the mother said the ghost turned her head around until it was facing backwards. Probably one of my favorite scenes from the movie The Exorcist. The story spread quickly and these visions had convinced the mother that her son-in-law, who called himself Edward in reality, but who his real name was Emerus Stribling Trout Shoe nicknamed or called in the community Trout. She believed he had killed her daughter. The mother and other family members met with Lewisburg prosecutor John A. Preston. Prosecutor Preston at first disbelieved the story. Being a gentleman though, he did listen nonetheless. After several hours of questioning, he became convinced that there was a basis to look at it a little bit closer. Now, on a personal note, I once worked for a detective captain who once told me that he didn't want to be the person to tell a family that not all the 
leads and information in a criminal case investigation had been followed up on because a specific lead or point of investigation had come from an unlikely source, a psychic, or he wanted everything checked out. And, of course, we did. Even if that lead came from an unlikely source, he would say. Now, our prosecutor, Mr. Preston, went to speak to Dr. Knapp, who told him that he had not made a very thorough and complete examination of the body and explained the circumstances behind that. Now, this was viewed as sufficient justification for an autopsy. An exhumation was ordered. An inquest jury was also called. Local law enforcement were charged with further investigation into Mr. Shu, looking into his past. They found a criminal history, including prison time, that was not known about before. It's also determined that Mr. Trout Shu had been married previously, twice before, both of these wives succumbing to death, occurring under strange circumstances. One died from a broken neck when she fell from a haystack. The other, while helping Shu to repair the chimney on their house. Shu apparently was on the roof, working on the chimney, and his wife was placing rocks in a basket that was to be pulled up with a rope. Pulling up the basket, the basket turned on its side, thus dropping the rock on wife number two, resulting in her death. The body under court order in the recent for wife number three, was exhumed with a coroner's jury assembled. The local newspaper, the Greenbrier Independent, reported that Trout Shu vigorously complained about his wife being disinterred. He was also advised that he would attend the inquest whether he wanted to or not, that one way or the other he would be there, either coming on his own or with the assistance of local law enforcement. As a matter of fact, he told the informing officer that he knew he would be arrested, but, quote, they will not be able to prove I did it, unquote. This careless statement indicated that he at least had knowledge that his wife had been mur murdered or there was something to it. And he made the statement to a law enforcement officer who presented this information in court. Now, the autopsy findings were actually quite damning. The autopsy lasted about three hours, according to the local paper. They found that Zana's neck had been broken. The report published March 9, 1897, which is still on file in the state of West Virginia. The discovery was made that the neck was broken and the windpipe smashed. Also, marks on the throat were observed, indicating that she had been choked. The neck itself was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured, and the windpipe crushed at a point in front of the neck. Now, based on this evidence and his behavior at the inquest, Shu was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. He was taken to jail at Lewisburg, where he was held until his indictment by a grand jury and then a trial in June. On June 22, 1897, after hearing all the evidence, the jury of his peers returned a verdict of guilty after only one hour and ten minutes of deliberation. The accounts in the media make it clear 
that Xu was convicted of the murder of his third wife on circumstantial and physical evidence and not because of a ghostly testimony. But then it comes back to the state-owned and built road sign history marker that says differently. Now, Xu was sentenced to life following a foiled lynching attempt a few days later. He was taken by train to the state prison where he died three years later from an unexplained illness, in one newspaper listed it. A unexplained epidemic is what is listed on a death certificate for the for the man. Hesitate to use the term gentleman. So there we have three unusual shades of blue from the Appalachian Mountains to look at, or that we have looked at. I want to thank again my producer Alice, and not to be forgotten, Alfred Dockery, editor, writer, advisor, and proofreader, the everlasting Mr. Ewop. And Victoria, if you're out there listening, we wish you a quick return and a safe trip. Thank you very much. We hope that you tune in and listen again later. Thank you. Five, four, three, two, one. You have been listening to the 542 in the Blue podcast. Discussions of law enforcement, history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. You can find links to the podcast and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can be reached through the message portal on the contact page. This is Alice, podcast producer. Background theme Mystery Sex by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons. 2. 1. End.